Welcome to the North Main Podcast, a production of North Main Street Church of God in Butler, Pennsylvania. This podcast brings you North Main's messages every week. We strive to know God intimately, grow in Christ continually, and go for Him daily. I invite you to listen in today as we explore the Bible and learn about its unchanging truths for living life God's way. Let's listen in to this week's message. One evening, several college students spread Limburger cheese on the mustache of a sleeping fraternity brother. Let that settle in for a bit. Upon awakening, the young man sniffed and looked around. He said, this room stinks. He then walked into the hallway and he said, the hallway stinks. And then he left the dorm. And he went outside, he said, the whole world stinks. (laughs) When we are the problem but refuse to see it, everything else in the world becomes the problem. Let me say that again, just really quickly. When we are the problem but refuse to see it, everything else in the world becomes the problem. See, this is the nature of sin and death in the world. This is the nature of the fall. The blame casting, the shifting in our seats to point to somebody else when we need to take responsibility for our own actions. Over the past few weeks, we've been going through this series entitled Love and Marriage, and I know it's been a tough series to go through because, quite honestly, we have a lot of broken marriages and relationships in the world today. Let's just say, even in our own culture, in our own backyard, maybe even in this church. Good, bad, indifferent, whatever the case may be, relationships are struggling. Not everyone. I don't want to be too overzealous in saying that every marriage or every relationship is on the rocks, but we've been going through this series, and I have gotten some pushback over the past few weeks because of the things I say or the way I say it or even the subject matter. Some people have decided to exempt themselves from a service like this because they don't think it is relative, but the reality is we do not live on an island unto ourselves. Even if you're not married and you've pledged a life of being single, this message is still Important. Why? Not because you may be destined for marriage, but you are destined to be in relationship with other people. Marriage is the highlight of this series, but this message pertains to all relationships, friendships, family relationships. Because not only at the beginning of time, when Adam and Eve were created and the two became one flesh... Not only was it relevant for that situation, they also had offspring, children. Were they to be in good relationship with their children? Or was that kind of off limits? No, God created us to be in marriage, and it's only the marital relationship that's good. Every other relationship is up for grabs. Whatever, you know, you can treat each other however you want to. No. Today we're going to talk about, well, actually two weeks, for the past two weeks, we've talked about what God's perfect ideal for relationships was and is. We talked about how God created man from the dust of the ground, breathed the breath of life into him, and then he brought the animals to him because he realized man was alone. Actually, God didn't need to realize it. He knew it. It's not good for man to be alone. And so what was God's solution to that? He put Adam into a deep sleep, and he pulled from the flesh of Adam what he would make into woman. We learned that God created male and female. And I know this smacks in the face of popular culture today. There are two genders. There are two sexes. And you, that will, that will in, undoubtedly put me on a list of haters. That I am a hateful person for even making that kind of a statement from a public place like this, supposedly brainwashing a group of people who would dare listen to a message I would bring. But to speak the truth, and even to speak it in love, does it make it any less truth if I say what's true, even if the culture believes it's a lie? 
I know that sounds really philosophical, but follow the logic with me. We talked about this this morning in the class that I teach on Sunday mornings. And I, I brought up the passage that was so transformative for me on where I stood in belief on Jesus Christ and where I stood in belief on the Bible. Do you want to know the one verse that solidified for me that the Word of God is unequivocally true and that the living Word, Jesus, is who he said he was? It's John 14, verse 6, and you hear me quote it often. The reason I quote it often is because it was such a life-changing a life-changing verse for me. I was studying my undergrad in Bible and theology and ministry at Warner University in Lake Wells, Florida, and I was actually really wrestling with my faith at the time. God, I believe in you, but why can't there be multiple ways, multiple paths? Why can't all religions lead to you? I mean, that's what the culture's teaching. That seems like the right thing. I mean, if you are an all-loving, all-merciful God, and people are truly searching and seeking, who, what, what does it matter if it's Islam, or Hinduism, or Buddhism, or Taoism, or any of the other isms out there? What does it matter? And as I was studying scripture, trying to seek answers, not even sure if what the Bible was telling me was true, I came across this verse. And Jesus is me, he's in the upper room with his disciples. It's the Last Supper. After dinner had happened, after he broke the bread and drank the cup and gave new significance to the Passover elements that morning or that evening, he then begins to talk to them around the table. And he says, listen, um, I'm not going to be with you much longer. I'm going to go prepare a place for you. I mean, you can't go there now, but, but I'm going to go prepare a place for you. And Thomas, you remember doubting Thomas? He wasn't the doubting Thomas yet in the story because Jesus hadn't died. But he speaks up around the circle of guys there that evening, and he says, just show us the way to the Father, or just show us the way and we'll be satisfied. Or just show us the way. Where are you going? Show us the way. And what does Jesus say? John 14, 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Now, he doesn't just stop there. He actually adds a second part to that, which is so exclusive that it seems almost hateful if you are on the opposing side of this issue. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. This is why you can say Jesus is a good teacher, he was a prophet, wow, he was an amazing guy, but if he truly is all of those things, would a liar be considered a good teacher? Would a liar be considered an amazing guy? No. And here's where it resonated with me. Either Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one can come to the Father except through him, or he's not. There's no middle ground on this. He is not one of many ways. He either is the way or he's not a part of any way. And I remember having that light bulb experience come on in my head and say, where do I stand? There's no, there's no middle of the road here. It's either all or nothing. And everything I'd come to know of Scripture up to that point, that God had revealed to me as I continued to study, read, and research, was pointing to him being the way, the truth, and the life. So I ask again, is it mean and hateful for Jesus to say the truth if it truly is the truth? See, that's the nature of truth, isn't it? Truth is naturally exclusive. It excludes everything else that is false. So now, Jesus says, and the way, the truth, and life, no one can come to the Father except through me. Now, Philip, one of the other disciples, pipes up at this point in the story. If you read John, John chapter 14, the whole chapter, you'll catch this. I'm paraphrasing, but as best I can, what does Philip say to Jesus? Because he says, no one can come to the Father except through me. And so Philip says, okay, well, you're the way. Well, just show us the Father and we'll be satisfied. Jesus' response to Philip 
again, is one of those truth-telling statements that should shift every belief one way or the other. Jesus says to Philip, have I not been with you this whole time and you still don't know me? Jesus, show us the Father and we'll be satisfied. Jesus says, have I not been with you this whole time and still you don't know me? And then he says, when you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I and the Father are one. Do you get what he's proclaiming in that one statement? Atheists and agnostics who've studied scripture will say, and they don't study it well, but who will say, Jesus never proclaimed to be the Messiah. No, but he proclaimed to be God. Or he, he told people to keep silent. He didn't want people to spread that he was the Messiah. So that means that, you know, you know hey, 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 let's not get into all that. You know, I'm not really, don't, don't say that to everybody. But he claimed to be God, God the Father. And this was blasphemous to the religious leaders. Why do you think they tried to kill him so many times? Anyway, I say all of that to establish the foundation. If Jesus is who he says he was, and he is the way to the Father, if God is truly God, and he is the moral authority above all else in this world, which I believe he is, and he then gives his word as a foundation to building life, then what happens when we decide to usurp that moral authority, which we claim is God, and we decide to rebuild a different foundation than what he's given us through his word? What happens to relationships? What happens to a society? What happens when families which were ordained by God in proper order, become disintegrated within a society? What happens when there's a trail of broken relationships within a society and there is no moral foundation or truth to establish a sense of sanity and wholeness? Well, what you get is what you're seeing in the news, reading in the papers. It's chaos. It's called anarchy. Whenever there is no moral authority and I become the sole determiner of right and wrong for me and you become the sole determiner of right and wrong for you, then we are pulling against each other instead of coming together. And what happens to relationships when that happens? If I'm in a relationship to get out of it what I want and I'm not pouring into the other person, what happens? I'm sucking the life out of them. When somebody does that to you, does it feel like they're sucking the life out of you? See, God did not create man and woman to suck the life out of each other. He didn't create friendships to suck the life out of each other. This is a result of what we're going to look at today called the fall. So turn with me to Genesis chapter 3. I'm going to read the whole shebang, beginning to end in this chapter. So remember, Adam and Eve been created. Actually, she's not Eve yet until the end of this chapter. She is Isha. That's what woman means. So Adam is Ish. Woman is Isha, okay? Mankind is Ha-Adam, which is where we get Adam from. So let's read. They're living, they're doing well in the garden, they're perfect, perfectly in communion with each other, they're naked and they feel no shame in each other's presence. There is nothing between them that separates them. And there's nothing between them and God that separates that relationship. They are living in perfect balance and unity the way God created. And he said it's very, very good. Now enter chapter 3. The serpent was the shrewdest, means the wisest, of all the animals, the wild animals the Lord God had made. One day he asked the woman, did God really say you must not eat the fruit of any of the trees of the garden? 
Of course we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, the woman replied. It's only the fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden that we're not allowed to eat. God said, you must not eat or even touch it. If you do, you'll die. Oh, you won't die? The serpent replied to the woman, God knows that your eyes will finally be opened. I put finally in there. Your eyes will be opened as soon as you eat it. And you will be like God, knowing both good and evil. Well, that's a tempting scenario, isn't it? If what the serpent is saying is true, then I'm in this weird juxtaposition. Do I obey what God said Or do I obey now what the serpent is telling me about this fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? My eyes will be opened. I thought my eyes were already open, but can they be open more than they are now? Is there more that I can know? Can I actually be like God? He is the object of all of my love and affection. Can I be more like him? Do you see how tempting this might be? So the woman was convinced. She saw that the tree was beautiful and its fruit did look delicious. And she wanted wisdom, the wisdom that it would give her. So she took some of the fruit and ate it. And then she gave some to her husband who was what? Say that one more time. Where was he? With her. So I get this picture. I'm sorry, I shouldn't laugh at this. I'm a very visual person. And so when I'm reading, I'm putting myself there somewhere in the scenario that is now a visual image in my mind. And I'm sitting there as I'm reading this, and I'm just wondering, he didn't have pockets, he was naked. So, I mean, I don't know how you, anyway, he's standing there with her, or he's in close proximity, I'm guessing he's aware what's happening, right? He was there with her. This conversation is happening. He had been given the directive directly by God, do not eat of the the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for if you do, you'll die. He heard that straight from the lips of God. And here's a woman listening to a serpent near the tree, and this is going on. What's he doing? And don't you say, well, what men usually do. (laughs) You hear that coming a mile away. So she took some of the fruit and ate it, and then she gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it too. And at that moment, what happened? Their eyes were opened, and they suddenly felt shame at their nakedness. It's like all of a sudden they, oh, this is really, you're naked. Because all of a sudden, they realized something about each other. You got one of those, and I don't. You got a couple of those, and I don't. Or they're different. You think I'm being silly, and I am, but I'm saying, put yourself in the scenario. They realized something different at the moment they disobeyed God's command. And it says they felt shame at their naked. Not like they were like, hey, look at me, woo. They felt shame. They wanted to hide themselves from each other. So what did they do? They sewed some fig leaves together to cover themselves. This is why you get the depictions in the old Renaissance art where there's the fig leaves covering the man's private area and then the hair covering Eve's top part and then the fig leaves covering her bottom area. They sewed fig leaves together and they made garments from that to hide their bodies from each other because they were ashamed. When the cool evening breezes were blowing, the man and his wife heard the Lord God walking about in the garden. So they hid from the Lord, the Lord God, among the trees. <laughs> Have you ever played hide and seek in the woods? Right? And you hide behind a tree? It's just a matter of time. You're going to be found. Of course, this is God all-knowing. Have you ever tried to hide from God? 
You, you can't, right? He knows where you are. So they hid from the Lord among the trees, and when God called to the man, he says, where are you? And he replied, I heard you walking in the garden, so I hid. I was afraid because I was naked. Do you ever hear somebody coming, you're like, ooh, and you take off running, right? Especially as a kid. I remember getting into things I wasn't supposed to as a kid and doing things I wasn't supposed to. I was a pyro as a little elementary school kid. Sorry. Uh, I'm not an arsonist, okay? But I loved fire. I don't know why. It was intriguing to me. And so I would light things. And you've heard the story about me one year getting one of the Christmas candles when mom got all the Christmas decorations out and I lit it. And I was like, ooh, this is cool in my bedroom because I wasn't allowed to play with matches or lighters. But in the confines of my bedroom, she never knew. And so I lit it, and I'm like, ooh, this is cool, until the wax started to drip on my hand, and it freaked me out, and I dropped it, and I caught my carpet. Now, this was before flame retardant carpet. And now I'm in a dilemma. What do I do? If I tell my mom, she'll know that I've been playing with fire. If I don't tell her, guess what? She'll know. <laughs> Which is the worst of the two scenarios? Get in trouble, keep the house from burning down, or get in trouble and burn the house down. So I told her. This is the nature of temptation. It's, it's beautiful. It's sparkling a lot of times. We think it's going to make us feel good and, and, and do better things. But when we hear somebody coming, when we're doing something we shouldn't, we run. We hide. The sitcoms today, when there's an affair going on, where is the first place the one who's having the affair runs when the spouse comes to the door, to the closet, under the bed? Anything different from Genesis 3? I heard you walk in the garden, so I hid because I was afraid. I was naked. And then Jesus, Jesus well, technically, yeah, God says... Who told you you were naked? Who told you that? And then before Adam is even able to answer the question, he said, did you eat of the tree I told you not to? Did you eat of the tree whose fruit I commanded you not to eat? And here it comes. The man replied, it was the woman you gave me who gave me the fruit, and I ate it. Do you catch the weird scenario? I mean, do, you, do you catch what he's saying? It was the woman who gave. <laughs> so who's he casting some of the blame on? God. It was her. So he's now double blaming. And then he finally admits at the very end of his statement, I ate it. You think it's going to soften the blow of the consequences because if I give enough excuses, maybe he'll be lighter in punishment on me. We do this in the courtroom all the time. Plea bargains is what we call them. Then the Lord God asked the woman, what have you done? The serpent deceived me, she replied. That's why I ate it. And then the Lord God said to the serpent, he doesn't even ask the serpent. Because he knows who the serpent is. He knows who the tempter is. He doesn't even ask questions. Why did you do this? Because he knows there's nothing good in evil. And so why even ask it a question? And so God says to the serpent, because you have done this, you are cursed more than all the animals, domestic and wild. So notice the curses that are doled out and the consequences that are doled out in these next few verses. The only one who is actually cursed, used the word cursed, is the serpent. The others are consequences of disobedience. So God says to the serpent, you're cursed more than any of the other animals, domestic or wild. You will crawl on your belly, groveling in the dust as long as you live. And I will cause hostility or enmity, meaning ill will or hatred is what this means between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. 
Now, there's a lot going on here. The reason you see these sections indented is because it is poetry. Do you notice this in your Bibles? Okay. These sections about the curses and the disobedience, the punishments, are indented because they are written in what is typically called Hebrew, Hebrew poetic language. And so when you read poetry, what do you, do you read poetry literally, figuratively, metaphorically? It's a little bit of all of that, okay? Poetry reflects reality in sometimes figurative language, okay? So catch what's going on here. It's not that this is any less true because it's poetry, but there's imagery here that foreshadows a future thing to come. And we know within the context of this, which we will talk about next week, he will strike your head and you will strike his heel is referring to someone, an offspring through the lineage of woman who will actually deal once and for all with the result of the problem of evil through the deception of the serpent. Do you see what her offspring will do to the serpent's offspring? The one coming from the woman will crush, he will crush the head of the, how do you kill a snake? You either cut the head off or you crush its head. This is common knowledge among any culture. So what now God is telling the serpent, the result of this birthing of evil among humanity will be dealt with once and for all. It will finally be crushed by the offspring of woman. Oh yeah, you might, you're gonna strike his heel. You'll get one good blow in, but he's gonna crush your head. Now, what does he go on to say? He now moves on to the woman. Do you notice the, the difference? Who did he confront first when he came into the garden and they were hiding? Adam. Then who did he confront? Eve. And then he cursed the serpent. And now he's going to the woman and then back to Adam. Do you see how that functions within this? So now he goes to the woman. He says, I will sharpen the pain of your pregnancy, and in pain you will give birth. Now catch this next phrase. You will desire to control your husband. Some of these versions that you read, it says your desire will be for your husband. But in the context of the Hebrew, what that's actually stating is you will desire and jockey for position with your husband. Do you see the consequence. Now, God, I want you to know, is not saying anything prescriptive here, meaning, meaning I'm saying this is exactly what's going to happen because I'm mandating it to happen. He's not prescribing it like prescribing medicine for his sickness. He is actually just telling them, this is what's going to happen because of what you've done. It's like me telling my kid, don't touch the stove. If you touch it, you're going to burn your hand. Right? That is a fact and a reality of the consequence of what I'm telling you not to do. He's not prescribing, I'm going to burn you. He's saying, this is what's going to happen. And so he's telling the woman, because of this whole scenario and breakdown and disobedience, you're going to desire to jockey for position with your husband. But guess what's going to happen? He will rule over you. Do you catch what's happening there? Was this happening prior to this point? Did the husband rule over the wife prior to this point? No. And this is where modern interpretations through other false teachings get into, and I don't use the word false teaching often, and I'm very careful about how I use this, but this is how the curse continues to be perpetuated today is we take what was the consequence of the fall and we keep it in place within the church and within society. Sorry, I'm preaching too much on that point. Let's continue. And he said to the man, since you listened to your wife and ate from the tree. Now we can read into that what we think it's saying. Since you listened to your wife, 
Do you catch how that goes? Since you listen to her. But see, I think God doesn't do anything snarky or snide. I think God is truth and love, and yes, he's a God of justice. I don't think he's a God of sarcasm. I don't. But we often read things into verses that aren't there to be read into. And so what he's saying, since you listen, this is a truth statement. Since you listen to the wife that I gave you, and you ate from the tree, whose fruit I commanded you not to eat, the ground is cursed because of you. What's cursed? Adam isn't cursed. Eve isn't cursed. The ground is cursed because of you. And again, these are the only two words in Hebrew that actually mean cursed. The serpent is cursed, and now the ground is cursed. Do you find it ironic that Adam was taken from what? The ground. But now the ground is cursed. And technically, being made of ground, he's suffering the curse, which will actually come to play a point at the end of this section. The ground is cursed because of you. All of your life, you will struggle to scratch a living from it. It it will grow thorns and thistles for you, though you will eat of its grains. By the sweat of your brow, you will have food to eat until you return to the ground from which you were made. For you were made from dust, and to dust you will return. And now, catch this. Go back to Genesis 2. It's not good for man to be alone, and God brings him all of the animals. He notices they are in pairs. There wasn't a helper suitable. But what is Adam doing as God's bringing these creatures to him? He's naming them. A part of dominion and rulership is naming Did you know that? This is why whenever Moses in Exodus chapter 3 asks the burning bush, who is God, who shall I say is sending me to set the Israelites free, what does God state? Because God cannot be encapsulated in a name, he says, I am that I am. Tell them that's who's sending you. It's interesting in that verse or in that chapter, he's already told him who, was, who he was whenever, whenever Abraham approached. He said, take off the sandals for the place where you're standing is holy ground. He says, I am the God of your father, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's already told him who he was. Well, who shall I say is sending me? He wants to know more intimate. And God doesn't give him a name because name really implies rulership. And so what does Adam do in the next verse? Then Adam, then the man, Adam, named his wife Eve. It's already starting to happen. Your desire will be for your husband, but he will rule over you. And then in the very next statement, he named his wife Eve because she would be the mother of all who live. She was more than just a mother in the garden. She was helpmeet. And now is she, not that being a mother is one of the most blessed things in the world, and not that that should ever be diminished, but now is that all she is good for? What if, uh, and the Lord God made clothing from animal skins for Adam and his wife. Here's the interesting thing. I've said this before. This is the first death mentioned in Scripture, actually alluded to. We don't get the death of the animals, but where do you think animal skins come from? Dead animals. I mentioned this in my class this morning because it dawned on me. I'm putting pieces together. Yes, the pastor still learns, (laughs) believe it or not. Um, The animal skins were a blessing and a mercy, but they required a sacrifice in order for Adam and Eve not to have to keep sewing together fig leaves in the wilderness, they needed something more substantial for the thorns and the thistles they were going to be working against in the harsh fallen world. And so God provided them animal skins to go into the wilderness. Do you find it interesting that it took the death of animals to provide a covering for Adam and Eve for safety? And then you go into the Old Testament and there's a sacrificial system. What did they sacrifice? Animals. 
And the blood of those sacrifices became a covering for the sin in the Old Testament Jewish culture. And then Jesus comes onto the scene and he becomes a sacrifice. And this time it's a perfect man we know to be Emmanuel, God with us. And the blood of his sacrifice, as we know in the Last Supper, covers a multitude of sins. And we read the author of Hebrews who states he is the once and for all time sacrifice. We don't have to keep going back and offering sacrifices because what Jesus did covers all of that. Man, that'll preach. It's a different sermon topic for a different time. So he provided them with animal skins. And then the Lord God said, look, the human beings have become like us, knowing both good and evil. What if they reach out and take the fruit of the tree of life and eat it? Guess what? The tree of life was there. Then they will live forever. Now this sounds weird. Wouldn't God want us to live forever? Not in the state of fallenness and brokenness and sinfulness. And so you see what happens next. It's also an act of mercy where God has doled out punishments and has given consequences for their actions. The Lord now banishes them from the Garden of Eden and he sent Adam to cultivate the ground from which he had been made. Do you remember in Genesis 2, it says God created Adam from the dust of the ground, breathed the breath of life into his nostrils. He became a living being and then he placed him in the garden. He didn't create him in the garden. He created him in the wilderness outside of the garden. And now where is he banished to? That place from whence he once was created. After sending them out, the Lord God stationed mighty cherubim to the east of the Garden of Eden. And he placed a flaming sword that flashed back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. Here's the key point. Sin broke all relational unity within God's perfect creation, thus resorting in a distortion of what God once called good. So I gave you all of that background intentionally. I spent the whole time on that chapter because I want to give you some quick points this morning, not just for you to fill in the blanks for those of you who are OCD with that kind of stuff, but so that you can actually have a little more content that goes along with this. The first thing is we see blame shifting. Blame shifting. What happens here? The man replied, or excuse me, who told you that we were naked? The Lord God asked, have you eaten from the tree whose fruit I commanded you not to eat? And the man says, it was the woman you gave me who gave me the fruit and I ate it. Then the Lord God asked the woman, what have you done? The serpent deceived me. She replied, that's why I ate. Now there's a difference in responses here. Eve passes the blame, but do you notice what she doesn't do compared to what Adam does do? Okay? She actually puts the blame where blame is to be given. But she also admits she was deceived. Do you catch that? She takes at least some partial responsibility, but she's still at fault. What does Adam do? God, it's the woman you gave me who gave me the fruit from the tree, and then I ate it. Again, double blame not much responsibility till the very end. You know, I wouldn't have done this had you not given me a woman. It's basically what he's saying, isn't it? Again, I don't want to read into this what's not there, but you catch in the accusation that he's putting the blame on God. If you hadn't created her, do you see the brokenness already? He's blaming God, he's blaming Eve. If it was just me, I would have been fine. You told me not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and I wouldn't have. But then everything got complicated. We don't do this today, though. Not at all. We own up and take responsibility for our actions every single time. Eve, what have you done? Now, this isn't God saying, what have you done? Again, we read into it. I don't think God does that. Who told you you were naked? Did you actually eat of the tree? Were your eyes opened to the reality of your nakedness? That wasn't evil before then, but now is because of the consequences of sin. 
Because instead of eyes of innocence, you're going to look with eyes of lust upon each other. And as you procreate and grow and you see somebody who might be prettier, you're going to be prone to temptation because your eyes have been opened to the reality of not only your shame and your situation, but somebody else's situation that you might envy more than yours. And Eve, what have you done? See, what he's asking her is, tell me an account of what actually happened from your perspective. This is what a policeman does when they come on the scene of a crime or accident. They get witnesses and they ask questions. And that's what a judge does from the bench. And who is the only righteous judge who has ever been given that authority over mankind? God. What is it you've done, Eve? The serpent deceived me, and so I ate it. It's pretty powerful stuff, isn't it? Former professor of biblical theology and author, Dr. Gilbert Bilzekian, goes further to explain, though Adam's answer to God's question, have you eaten from the tree, should have been a contrite yes. Do you catch that? Let me pause for a second. Sarah Lee and I have been married, I've told you, for 23 years. We're in our 24th year, and we have not had the perfect marriage. I wish I could say we had. I wish I could say we've never had an argument or fight. We've never been stubborn with each other. We've never lorded over each other. We've never gotten into any bad situation to where we would be frustrated with each other, but that would be a lie. I could never tell you that. As a matter of fact, our marriage was so, and she doesn't mind me saying this, but our marriage was so tough the first two to three years of our marriage, we contemplated divorce. But here's what kept us from doing that. We said when we were engaged that we would never in our marriage ever say the word divorce as a word to be spoken. It was like, you know, Voldemort. You just don't say it. (laughs) Sorry, for you Harry Potter fans, and I'm probably blaspheming because some of you think it's demonic. Anyway, um... You, 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 it's one of those words you never speak into existence. Because we believe words have power and words can have authority. So why give it an edge in our relationship by even speaking it into existence? Even if it's just empty, like, well, maybe we should get a divorce. So we said from the very beginning we would never do that. And it would never be an option in our marriage. Do you understand what that means? And When you have an option, it means it is one of many things that you could do. We promised to each other and to God it would never be an option. Now, I know many of you in this room are divorced, and this isn't a slight against you. It is a condemnation against you. But if we're actually juxtaposing God's perfect ideal with a broken and fallen world, we have to contend with what is God's ideal and what is the broken reality in which we live. Is there redemption and wholeness beyond divorce? Yes, you will never hear me say opposite from here. But what is God's perfect ideal? And why does it go bad? It goes bad because the two begin to fight with each other and blame each other and suck life out of each other, as I said earlier. And we've done that to each other. But what has sustained us, and I'm being completely honest here, is our faith and hope in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior of our lives, individually and together as one. And it's taken both of us to do that. When I feel the pride rising up in me and I want to lash at her like the serpent lashing at her heel, I have to not be so prideful that I don't also come back and say, I'm sorry. I said these things to you in anger and I cut you to the quick and I've hurt you. Will you please forgive me? that does not give me then license to keep going back and doing it over and over and over again, reopening a wound because I think she's going to forgive me and I take for granted she's going to forgive me because she's all human like I am. The only thing that makes us together is this relationship in Jesus Christ. This is why when I do premarital counseling, I tell the couple, if you are not rooted in Christ as individuals and you find your hope and healing in him alone... This marriage is not going to work because you're going to superimpose an expectation on your spouse and expect them to be God for you. And when they fail you, which they will, then you're going to
upset and angry, you're going to be opposed to them. I promise you, in every relationship, specifically the marriage, where do you think the enemy wants to get in and destroy? Because if he can destroy the most fundamental ordinance of marriage, he can destroy a society. I'm talking to men and women here. You both have a part to play in this. There's this power imbalance that happens. It's the next one. What happens? What happens to the relationship between Adam and Eve? We see it whenever God's talking to Eve about the consequences of her behavior. It's not prescriptive. Remember, God's not saying, okay, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to set the man over you now. That's not what he says. He says, your desire will be to control or to contend against your husband, but he will rule over you. How have we seen this play out? We call it, okay, this is going to be fun because this is getting political, but it's not meant to be. Okay, please understand, I'm not advocating for either one of these, and you're both, I'm going to tick somebody off on either side of this issue right now, and I'm not trying to. Okay, that's just a preface into what I'm getting ready to state. And when I put this in here, I'm thinking, oh, Lord, are you sure you want me to talk about this? And, and I didn't hear the audible voice of God, but I felt a conviction that this needed to be stated. Patriarchy, feminism. Which one's right? I'm sorry, say that again. Thank you. We've got a couple people who actually answered it. The rest of you are like, I don't, I don't know. Or you do know, and you don't want to state it. Or you do know, and you're getting ready to state it because you're bold enough to state it. The reality is, if you actually unpack Genesis 1, 2, and 3, don't look at any of the rest of Scripture right now because we're just three chapters into this narrative of creation. What was before the first sin entered the world is different than what happens after that. The two of them were co-equals, having dominion and rulership over all of the living creatures in the world, over God's created order. Do you catch that? Yes, they were still male and female. One was physically stronger than the other, typically because of the genetics God created from the two that he had made. They were unique, but co-equals. One not lording over the other in any context, in the perfectness of God's blueprint for humankind. And now we wrestle against the patriarchy. You ever heard that? It's the patriarchy. I would agree, because that's not what God created. But it's also feminism. Well, I would say... <laughs> My, one of my, I don't know if my other daughter's here. I'm not going to talk about that. So let me ask you this question real quick. Define feminism. If by your definition of feminism you mean that women are equal to men in, in their co-regent fleshing out of dominion and rulership, then I would say yes. But there's a thing called Uber feminism, or what we call second wave feminism, which is actually rooted in Marxist theology, and not theology, he didn't believe in God, but it is a religion, Marxist ideology. And when you see that actually play itself out, if you know anything of the history of these movements from the 60s, 70s, you actually see them rooted in an anti-God ideology. And so... It's not only now that women are equal to men, it's that women are better than men and we don't need men and that's not healthy either, is it? And then you can actually unpack that into different ethnicities and race. Where do you think racism comes from? If there was one core family unit through which all family units have sprung forth, throughout the course of human history. And actually, actually, if you talk to geneticists today, there's been research and study on this, that through the mitochondrial DNA, it seems to be that there is one single mother 
that, that all people come from. They haven't fully figured this out yet, but it seems to be pointing in the direction that there's a, a common human ancestral people through which all other people have sprung forth. If that's the case, then the blood that flows through our veins comes from a common family ancestor, regardless of what color of skin or ethnicity you are. So is it Black Lives Matter? Oh, I told you it's getting political, but it's not. The reality of this is that it all lives do matter to God, and they should matter to us. And I know that it's gotten such a wonky, weird feeling in the community because it's a polarizing thing to say. But why is it polarizing? It's only polarizing because that's what the enemy does. The enemy wants us to be so far separated from each other that he can continue to hold sway and control over us. And he gets us focused on us being the enemy than him being the enemy. When the enemy gets us focused on fighting with each other against, against, race, against our races and against our genders and against all, what, is he, what has he done? He gets the focus off. The real battle. And Paul tells us in Ephesians 6, we wrestle not with flesh and blood, but principalities, powers, and rulers of this dark, demonic world. And so, therefore, put on the whole armor of God. Instead, I'll go out with prayer. I'll go out with the breastplate of righteousness. I'll show people how righteous I am. But the rest of you is exposed. You're going to get taken down. The whole armor. What would happen if our military went out onto the battlefield and forgot their guns? They'd be sitting targets, wouldn't they? Or what if they ran out there without their helmets or their armor, their bulletproof armor? What, what would happen? They'd be picked off like that. Now, in a spiritual sense, what happens? And we do this because how many of you could quote the armor of God? You might be able to. But most of us probably can't. So if you can't even quote it, do you even know it? And if you don't know it, how are you fighting the daily battles? You're fighting against your spouse? You're fighting against your kids? You're fighting against your boss? You're fighting against your mom and dad? I promise you it's a spiritual battle. It plays out in the physical world, but in order to fight that battle well, it's not against each other, it's against the enemy who seeks to steal, kill, and destroy. And it's not feminism, it's not patriarchy, it's the two becoming one flesh. And what God has joined together, what does he say? Let no one separate. That means even you. That's God's ideal, but we don't live in that ideal. We live in a broken and fallen world. So there's patriarchy and femininity, or feminism. Sorry, polygamy. Told you we were going to get to this. Polygamy. Well, Abraham had multiple wives. And Jacob, he had two wives and two concubines. And uh, David had multiple wives. You know, these heroes of the faith in the Old Testament, and God never struck them dead, and he never came right out fully against them. So polygamy's okay, right? Actually, within some sects, of religions, it's still okay to have multiple wives because they say, well, it happened in the Old Testament. It's okay. And God never came right out and struck people dead or he never came right out against it. Well, there are cultural things you need to understand about a patriarchal society where there is male rulership that is abused throughout the course of human history. Women, after the fall ended up taking a place of second-hand citizenry, if even that, within many cultures. If you actually read <clears throat> about the difference between male and female throughout the course of human history, women were subjected to the worst abuses in society. And so now polygamy comes onto the scene. Guess what? It doesn't take but one more chapter. Go to chapter 4 of Genesis, and you read at the very end, after Cain and Abel... You know, that debacle happened. A descendant of Cain became the first man to have two wives. <clears throat> and so 
if man had rulership and his claim to fame now was more power, more authority, more possessions, and women were this low, then if I have two women, it shows how much more powerful I am. And so now it becomes an ingrained factor within society that also encroaches upon the Jewish people who follow Yahweh. So why doesn't God knock it out from under, from under the stool that it's propped up on? It never advocates for it. You can read throughout all of the law of the Old Testament, but you'll see there is provision made if a man has more than one wife. It doesn't say a man should have more than one wife, but it, what it's speaking into is the cultural situation. If he has more than one wife, this is what should happen. Again, not prescriptive, but actually trying to deal with the brokenness and fallenness within society, even within Jewish culture. And so polygamy was tolerated, but it was never really a part of God's perfect ideal. And I challenge you, find me one instance where there's a man that has more than one wife and it works out well. <laughs> Tell me. Show me where it works out. The consequences of that Those of you at home, the lights just started going out. I peed myself a little. Anywho, <laughs> I thought I said something like, okay, I'm getting ready to get struck down. <laughs> and then divorce was a power struggle because guess who could only divorce up until a certain period of time? Between a man and a woman, who was the one that was only allowed to offer a paper of divorce? The man even in the Jewish culture. Matthew chapter 19, some Pharisees came and tried to trap Jesus with this question. Should a man be allowed to divorce his wife for just any reason? That's what's happening. By the time Jesus comes onto the scene, divorce is just, it's kind of like today. Anybody can do it. Everybody's doing it. But only the men were doing it in that society. So should a man be able to divorce his wife for any reason? So they're trying to trick Jesus. They know that they shouldn't be able to divorce their wives for just any reason. And Jesus says, I love this, because they've memorized the law. Jesus says, haven't you read your scriptures? <laughs> and these are, these are Pharisees. They had dedicated their life to being scholars of the law of God. It's kind of a backhanded thing, right? Have you read your scriptures? Jesus replied, they record from the beginning that God made them male and female. And he said, this explains why a man leaves his father and mother, is joined to his wife, and the two become united into one. Since they are no longer two but one, let no one split apart what God has joined together. What does Jesus do when he's being confronted with the issue on divorce? Does he go back to Moses and the law of Moses? Where does he go? Pre-fall. Do you catch what Jesus is saying? God's original design wasn't for divorce. Why are you even asking me this question? Should a man be able to divorce his wife for any reason? Because divorce was never a part of the vocabulary of God. This was his perfect ideal. And he's confronting the Pharisees who should know better. But the Pharisees are trying to trip him up. And then they go on a little further. And they said, well, why did Moses say that the law, say in the law that a man could give his wife a written notice of divorce and send her away? And Jesus replied, <laughs> love this statement. Moses permitted, permitted divorce only as a concession to your hard hearts. Whose hard hearts? He's talking to the Pharisees, to your hard hearts. You know, your descendant, or your, your ancestry and you. Because you have such hard hearts, there was a concession that was made to deal with this problem within the marriage. It wasn't God's design, but it was a concession made because of the hardness of your all stupid heart. No, I didn't say stupid heart, but you catch what I'm saying. But this, listen to what he says, Moses permitted divorce only as a concession to your hard hearts, but it was not what God had originally intended. And I tell you this, whoever divorces his wife and marries someone else commits adultery unless his wife has been unfaithful. 
You have to understand the context in society. Men could only divorce their wives. And they were doing it because maybe she burnt a meal. Or maybe she was just undesirable to him anymore. Or maybe any number of things. And he could write her a hidden, a written uh, paper of divorce and send her on her way. And a woman alone in society was as good as dead. Unless she had a provider because of the male-dominated society of the rulership problem. Am I making any sense here? Okay. I want you to see very clearly that what we perpetuate even in the church is anti what God has desired in many ways, if we're not careful. This debate over whether women can hold positions of ministry is really a moot issue. And the reason why, and you can find scripture that says a woman shouldn't speak or teach a man. But can you also find scripture where it says, when a woman prophesies, she should do it this way? Or when a woman prays publicly, she should do it this way? So what is it? She can speak publicly or she can't. When you have an issue like that, it doesn't mean the scripture contradicts itself. It means that there's a contextual, historical issue we need to dig deeper in. However, when you see something that it, from Genesis to Revelation is exactly the same way taught all the way through, then you can bet we build doctrine on that. We build doctrine on what is unequivocally true, black and white. We don't build doctrine on gray issues or issues that are one way in one section and a different way in another section of Scripture. Those are contextual, and we have to unpack that. And I'm probably ruffling some feathers, but Church of God, we have women hold the highest positions within the church. Our state leader is a woman. Our state minister over Western Pennsylvania is a woman. I may not agree with her all the time, and I know she may not always agree with me, but the two of us work together to bring about God's good and perfect ideal. Just as the women on our team do, and on our board. And it's not because we're skirting the scriptural issues, it's because we're trying to get back to the original ideal that God had designed prior to the fall. There's an authority reversal. Let me just close with this. Instead of man and woman having dominion over the rest of the world, what does the world have over them? It's cursed. The ground is cursed. And so, whereas Adam and Eve could just tend the garden, reap its harvest, and keep the ground cultivated, now they have to work hard for it. I don't know if you've ever planted a flower garden, a vegetable garden, or you're a farmer and you've done acres of crops, but sometimes you know it, conditions have to be exactly right to get a crop. See, Adam and Eve didn't have to worry about that. Adam and Eve actually... It just happened. It was, but they had to put some effort into it, but it was pleasurable work. It wasn't hard work. It was work that they found enjoyment in doing. And now there's a reversal of that role. Let me close with this as our worship team comes forward. I know I've gone a bit long today. A girl by the name of Jenny was with a group of teenagers at a party one evening. Somebody suggested, hey, let's go to a nightclub. We'll get uh, fake IDs and stuff. We'll, we'll find a way to get in there. But Jenny said, no, my parents wouldn't like that. And one of the other girls said, are you afraid your father will hurt you? No, she replied, I'm not afraid my father will hurt me. I'm afraid I might hurt him. Until we get to the point where our fear is properly placed in a holy God that we are going to be displeasing to him, we're going to have this thing in relationships upside down. God, I want, I want my responses, my love toward my wife to reflect your glory. Because I desire not as much just to please her, but to please you too in the way I treat her. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her to make her holy and clean. And wives, respect your husbands. We're going to talk about that next week.
Ever since the fall, humanity lost its way. Instead of thinking like Jenny, we roam through life either throwing caution to the wind out of selfish thought and desire, or we live in fear of punishment and guilt driven by insecurity. However, what if we actually cared what God thought about who we are and what we do? What if we really cared about God's purposes and desires for our relationships and our marriages? What if we were more concerned about hurting him by the decisions we make? Would it change anything in your relationship? Husband, wife, friend, son, daughter, mother, father. Would it change how you relate to your spouse? Would it change how you relate to others? Sin broke all relational unity within God's perfect creation, thus resulting in a distortion of God's perfect design for creation. Are you perpetuating the consequences and the curses or are you working to redeem what has been lost? You can only work to redeem what's been lost if you yourself are redeemed by the Son, Jesus Christ. And so our altars are open for you as individuals, you as couples, you as broken friendships, relationships. Some of you actually in this room right now have enmity between you and someone else in this room. And I'm calling you out. It does nothing but to destroy like a cancer that is incurable if you do nothing about it. Cross the aisle today. Offer forgiveness. Offer a sense of restoration and reconciliation this morning. If you truly are in Christ, you are a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. And the curse has been broken over your life. Why don't you help break the curse over other people's lives as well? Father, in this place, we pray for your goodness, your mercy, your wholeness, your hope. And we do believe that our only hope is in you. That with us it's impossible but God with you all things are possible and no I don't think those are are false words to speak God redeem us as individuals create within us clean hearts and renew right spirits within us restore our relationships Bring us to a place of reconciliation. Help us in spite of our differences with each other to see the image of God that has been placed in each of us. To love the way we've first been loved by you. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thanks for joining us this week. Check back next week as we dig deeper and go further in our understanding of God's Word. Make sure to visit us on our website, www.northmaincog.org, where you can learn more about us. If you found value in today's message, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes, or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would be helpful too. Donating to the ongoing ministry of North Main is easy. Just go to our website and click on the Give tab at the top of the screen. Thanks for listening. We look forward to you joining us again next week.